0: Hi, I'm Rochelle Jackson. Welcome to The Crime Couch. I'm an investigative journalist and true crime author. And I know who's who in the zoo. The crims, the cops, and the interesting individuals in between. So get comfy and join me each week on the crime couch for a rollicking, intriguing tale. It'll be one heck of a journey. Former Detective Inspector Glenn Davies is committed to preventing violence against women and children. He spent 30 years in the job, in the armed robbery squad, in Boner Task Force and the clandestine lab squad before finishing up heading the sex crime squad. Glenn's worked on government boards and parliamentary inquiries, giving advice about sex offenders and supporting victims of clergy sexual abuse. He's worked across the Asia-Pacific, developing policy and education on the prevention of violence against women and children, including educating police from Fiji, PNG, the Solomon Islands and Vanuatu. Hi Glenn, thanks very much for sitting with me on the crime couch today. Hey, thanks for having me, Rochelle. Let's talk a little bit about your commitment and your passion about preventing violence against women and children. When did that actually begin? Uh, I think,
1: m- like most police, I joined the, the, the job to uh, make a difference, to uh, serve the community. But for for me, um, I come from a background where family violence was in my home uh, and it's had an impact on myself and my my brothers and sisters. Uh, and so for me, uh, that developed my justice streak. That was something I was, I was passionate about for a long time and um, I'm really glad I've had the opportunity to, to work further with it.
0: What motivates you to work in this area?
1: Uh, I think service to victims. I think um, uh, making, it, making it better in regard to addressing accountability for, for offenders as well. Uh, and I think that's a, a, a big space to, to, that we're currently looking at, is to how are we going to hold men to account who choose to use violence against women and children. Um, we've got laws in place that have developed over time, um, but how are we going to uh, educate the community about saying no uh, and about doing what they can do to, to prevent these sorts of crimes from happening.
0: Now I know in doing my research for the interview today, I realised how little I know about these areas. Can you just simply explain to me and to anyone listening, what's the difference between, say, sex crime and family violence?
1: Yeah, um, family violence is essentially a, a, the relationship violence that happens within a home. Um, it's um, it, it can be committed by um, siblings, but predominantly in heterosexual relationships, uh, it's perpetrated by a man on a woman um, in 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 that environment, uh, and is all types of violence, from physical violence to emotional, psychological violence, um, the use of coercive control, uh, and it's an exuding power or um, putting power over a partner in order to keep power and control in that relationship. Of course, sexual crime can be involved in that as well, um, but sexual crime is um, any sort of sexual crime that can uh, that happens um, between. Uh, maybe people who aren't in an intimate partner relationship. Um, perhaps uh, we, in, in policing we talk about um, uh, stranger crime where there's been a perpetrator that's not known to the victim. That's often not the case, and usually a victim is, is known to the perpetrator. Um, but that sort of sexual crime can be indecent assault, rape. Um, it can be uh, other crimes, some of the lower-level crimes, um, will exposure. Um, and uh, um, so fetishizing um, crimes as well. Uh, so we've had lower level crimes that where uh, a, a perpetrator may be stealing items of clothing from a from a victim and stalking her and uh, uh-huh. and so forth.
0: Okay. Now let's talk a little bit about when you first began in the job. It was a long time ago. So let's talk about how was domestic violence at that stage. How was that perceived by police?
1: Yeah, I, look, I started my policing career in the 80s, um, and I think we had a very different attitude towards domestic violence. Um, my, I remember my first call um, to a domestic violence incident. I was working with the sergeant. Um, we went to the house, and he detailed me to sit with the victim. Uh, the woman was uh, had a black eye, obvious injuries. There was a hole in the wall. The house was overturned. Um, and he took the took the man into the other room and had a talking to him. And, uh, you know, I don't know what happened behind the door, but I could hear um, he'd either got a smack in the ear um, and and warned and told, look, if we ever have to come back here again, you know what's going to happen. You're going to get dragged off. And, and I often look back to those days when that's the way things were handled mm. and think, what's the impact for that woman once the police leave? What would happen? What was the conversation happening in the room mm. after the police left? It certainly wouldn't have been... I've learnt my lesson now. He would have had a right. conversation with her and said, "If the police ever come back here again, look out." Right. Um, and I think that. And he possibly could have assaulted her further as a result, even just for for calling the police. Sure. Yeah. And I and I think that that's that for me. That's that's the way we were at in the 80s. It and were.
0: can I ask you, Glenn? Where does that come from? Was it perceived that it was just behind closed doors, something that really didn't have anything to do with police? Like, where did that come from? That you know, that perception about about you know a, a man hitting his wife.
1: Yeah, that's a great question, and plenty of people ask that question. Um, and uh, it was an attitude. It was a belief. It was a belief that uh, that was a private thing between a man and a woman in a relationship. It wasn't anyone else's business. And when I'm talking to police sometimes, what I say to them is, well, when would you intervene? At what stage? If you were looking through the window and you were looking at a domestic violence incident, when would you actually intervene in that? Is it when he slapped her? Possibly not. Is it when he pushed her against the wall? Possibly not. Is it when he stabbed her? When he choked her, when she was unconscious, when would be the time that you would consider that this is actually a crime? Mm. This is actually something that you need to intervene with. Mm. And this is, the, this is the thing that we talk about in the community now, that this is everyone's can have a contribution to this and calling this out. And sometimes it can be hard because those attitudes really run deep in the community as well. Mm. And it's hard. You know, I've been in the situation myself, or we were camping down on the foreshore and, and, and my partner said, woke up and said, oh, there's something going on in the tent next door. And, and there was a man who was beating his partner. And and it, you know, I said, oh, well, well, you know, myself was considering whether I should get up and intervene. Mm-hmm. But going out and calling out and say hey, is everyone all right? Do I need to ring the police? Are you okay? Do you need a help? Mm-hmm. Do, should I ring an ambulance? Those sorts of questions. You know, and... and it, it, it was ingrained into our community. This was a private thing. Right. It was reinforced by some religious attitudes as well about a man, um, th- that being private and sacred and, and, and that wasn't anyone else's business. So right. working right. in the Pacific, a lot of those attitudes still prevail uh, amongst those communities.
0: Okay. So when you were dealing with it, what were some of your first experiences of dealing with that in uniform, Glenn?
1: Yeah, look, as I said, that was my first one was in the Brighton incident, where there was a woman who was assaulted there. But um, I think there was a, policing is a is a difficult culture and quite a masculine culture as well. And and we have a we're a cross section of the community. Um, police are just representative of the community they serve, and more so these days than what they used to be. But um, we had we had a fairly macho culture, and and I wouldn't doubt that there was probably police as well who were in. Power and control relationships with their partners and hold those attitudes uh, held those attitudes fairly tight to themselves as well. So I think you know from my perspective that was something that uh, looking back that was something that was pretty pervasive in the in the in the policing community at the time. So domestics were seen as being a nuisance, mm-hmm. uh, not real policing, uh, getting in the way of doing real policing. But again, talking to police across the Pacific and and saying what are the most serious crimes? Well, murder. Rape, kidnapping, serious assaults—these are all domestic violence crimes. These are all crimes that you can get involved into to, you know, right the wrongs, to mm-hmm. have someone held accountable for their behaviour and for their actions. Mm-hmm. They're also seen as being were seen as being a nuisance in that we didn't get a result from it. There was no there was no end result where we could take the perpetrator to, to court. That relationship between a man and a woman—that's not. The relationship that we came into when we turned up at the at the door a man, the the man and woman are in in a relationship they're in it for love and they loved each other and they probably still loved each other when we went there wow. so there's an added complication of that often she wouldn't want to go ahead and have him locked up she wouldn't want to make a statement or she wanted to withdraw her statement a lot of police found that very hard to deal with as well so working on those expectations to say this is really valuable work going there Going there, holding the man to account, recording the incident, making sure that it's detailed. Um, the interaction, the intervention to stop him is really important as well. So if he had to go to the police station and get interviewed, if he had to get charged, if he had to get remanded, these, this may have never happened to him before. Mm. And for, for a lot of men, that's a real wake-up call to go, wow, I didn't realize that was so serious. I didn't realize that this was this was something that I could be hauled off to a police station for. Mm. Mm. Um, so, yeah, that um, um, it, it, those attitudes, I suppose, earlier on in the 80s didn't reflect the seriousness of what was going on behind it. We know a woman every week is killed at the hands of a partner or former partner, and, that, and that's really in-your-face statistics for, for, for Australia, I think.
0: How did these crimes... How did these crimes differ from an investigative point of view for you, um, you know, with your work in, say, in comparison with the work that you did at the Armed Robbery Squad and in Bona Force, You know, what are the points of difference?
1: Yeah. Um, look, I think that in relation to uh, violence against women and children, it's a very underreported crime. So if you looked at an iceberg, it would be very much the tip of the iceberg. Most of it's underwater. And most of it doesn't get reported. You get ninety percent of crimes where you've got a house broke in or someone breaks into your car that'll get reported. Mm. These crimes don't get reported for numbers of reasons. You know, from domestic violence perspective, I don't want to lose my relationship. I, I can't move out. I don't have the resources to look after my kids. Mm. Um, I've got I've got to um, uh, preserve this relationship because that's what I promised. All my family have expectations around that, so they don't want to rock the boat. In regards to sex crimes, of course, there's shame attached to that. Mm. There's also reticence around uh, the judicial system. What am I going to get dragged through? What's going to happen to me? How many times do I have to give evidence? Are they going to believe me? There's a lot of research that says that if I'm not believed, I'm not going to be. I'm not going to be going to speak to anyone about it. And certainly, from a policing perspective, the worst thing that a policeman can do is say uh, have a disbelieving attitude and say. Or well, what were you doing out late at night? While were you wearing that skirt? Did you encourage the man to do what he did? Um, uh, are you telling me a story? Or just out and out saying, oh, I'm saying this probably didn't happen. Um, mm-hmm. Because those, those victims, they're never going to come back.
0: Well, it's also a massive thing for a female to discuss something so publicly when it's something that's been so private.
1: Oh, so personal and so difficult. And, and the investigative process is very intrusive. It's, mm, absolutely. It's, you know, it's, it's um, medical examinations and swabs and statements that can go on for days. And, and it's a difficult thing to do. And I applaud any woman that goes through that because, you know, she's got it uphill. And it, it, it irks me that there's such a focus on, oh, she's probably making it up or mm. women tell lies about it because it's such a difficult thing to do. Really. Well,
0: it almost seems at times in some of the investigations... That the onus is on the female to prove her victim status.
1: Yeah, and I and I think even though there's laws in the courts that forbid the type of cross examination that would hold that person in a in a a victim category or sorry in a in a blaming category, mm. it still happens. the cross examination still questions her about: Did you encourage him? What were mm. you wearing? How did what did you move that way? Uh, could have he be interpreted your? Um, your actions as being invitational to mm. him, and and certainly that really complicates the issue when you're when you're um, prosecuting, um, and it and it's also it's really unfair cross examination. There's laws around that now, mm. um, but it still happens. I've sat in in a number of trials and seen it still happening, still going on. Um, referring to the 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 break of time between the offence and the and the reporting of the offence. Yep. Um, you know a, a and the victim's sexual history exactly The victim's sexual history uh the, the what the victim was doing at the time, inferring to a jury that they were encouraging uh, inviting sexual assault, which uh, doesn't make sense but that's that and that taps into people's perceptions and commonly held perceptions that are amongst the community
0: mm. Glenn, why do some men commit these types of crime
1: yeah uh. It, it, that's a, that's, that's a more of a, a complicated question. Uh, there is a perception that people who commit sexual crime specifically have some sort of mental disorder, and what we know is that that's not true. Uh, predominantly, um, the perpetration of sexual crime uh, is an act of power and control, the same as a domestic violence um, uh, act. And, yeah. and It is about uh, entitlement and privilege of a man that he feels as though he can. And so he does. I mean, earlier in my career, um, in the uh, in the early nineties, I was on night shift, and was called to a job down in the in the Mornington Peninsula where an eighty-two year old woman had been raped in her home. Um, two young offenders had broken in, uh, tied her up, tied up her husband, and raped her in front of him. It was horrific, and and uh, the the um, the uniform. Branch had, had detected these two guys on a motorbike, chased them, caught them, and we were coming down to, uh, to interview them for the night shift crime card. And I remember coming into the room and speaking to this young man, and what was going through my head was just rage and, and that wrestling with myself about how can I... I felt like just flogging him. I felt like belting him. Mm. Um, but then, you know, this, I pictured this poor old woman as being my grandmother, um, that the outrage that they had done this to her was, was just almost too much. But um, from a professional point of view, just thinking, well, you know, I can't do that. I've got to collect the evidence and put the brief together. And I, I just sat down with this kid and I said, um, this is who we are. We're detectives from the night Chief crime car. We've come down to interview you over an allegation that you broke into a house and raped an older woman, an elderly mm-hmm. woman in the house. And this kid broke down and started to cry and I said, mate, I think you need some help and he said, Yeah, I think I do as well. Um, and I thought at the time, um, I'm I'm glad I made the decision to sit there and talk to him one on one, as much as, as as hard as that was mm. to collect that evidence and to and to handle that brief of evidence and to go forward to the court and and, and get that conviction but I think that's the sort of stuff that sex crimes investigators have to deal with all the time mm. how do you How do you put your emotions in the in the back pocket how do you how do you sit that to one side be impartial and and do your job and uh, in a broader sense, holding these men to account is a really important thing. I suppose that's a long answer to a to a simple question but mm. so I, yeah it's um it can be a really difficult thing uh investigating those those types
0: of crimes. And I'd imagine for any detective involved in, you know, in those sorts of serious crimes, the same with Homicide Squad, about, you know, members having to compartmentalise their personal feelings to professionally do the job.
1: Oh, exactly, yeah, and, and that's, that's where it sits. I think the first time I went uh, to the sex crime squad as the inspector, I, I had 50... 55 people um, on staff. Um, we had a, a, a child uh, online child exploitation team who were doing that job full time. And I said to the sergeant, I said, "Look, I don't know. This is not my area of expertise. I've, I've charged a lot of people with with rape, but I but I haven't gone into this space. Tell me, show me what you do." And he said, "Yeah, no worries, boss." And we sat down in front of the computer, and he and he tapped in and logged on as a 14 year old girl. And that was, that was what, he says, this is what we do. I said, what do you mean? He said, let's go and get a cup of coffee. So, okay, well, we went and had a cup of coffee and we chatted. And we came back about 10 minutes later. In 10 minutes, there were 50 guys lining up to speak to this 14-year-old girl. They, was, they were making sexual overtures towards her. Um, they were asking her out on a date. They were asking her for sex. This is in the first conversation. I said, how long do you do this? And we said, well, he said, well, you know, sometimes it takes a week, sometimes a month, but eventually the end game is we go to a railway station, he's got the Bacardi breezes and the condoms that he's described in the conversation, and the hand goes on his shoulder and says, guess what? I'm, I'm Jenny, I'm the 14 year old girl. Mm. Um, and so. Th-
0: how did that strike you? I mean, did that make you. I mean, here you are. You know, a middle-aged man, a mature man, going in and looking at, like, this is just de rigueur for these guys. So does it make you reflect on men's sexuality at all?
1: Uh, I I think it. what it makes me reflect on now, years later, is how, how these men think that they're entitled and privileged to do that, to put a young girl, to target a young girl and to groom that young girl to have sex with her and believing that that's okay, mm-hmm. believing that's mm-hmm. my right to do that—that's mm-hmm. um, that's what struck struck me about that, and it sits with me till this day. That you know some of the some of those sorts of crimes and and the work that that team did in classifying child pornography, which is you know it, it, that's quite a contradictory term in itself. Pornography has got some sort of legitimacy. Child pornography are images of children being raped or sexually assaulted. Yeah. So images yeah. of children being raped and sexually assaulted. They're looking at that material every single day and classifying it and putting it into and describing it and putting it into briefs of evidence. They're trawling through material that they see from, seized from people's houses and looking for images of homegrown uh, images of ch- children being sexually assaulted or raped that might have been the next-door neighbour's child being invited into this man's house. Um, I mean, the first thing I did was made sure that, they They were getting some sort of debriefing and psychological support mm. on a regular basis because mm. I mean to do that work day in day out yeah. it, it would you know you you would you, it would keep you up at night it's just horrific yeah. um horrific work to do but but very necessary work and very rewarding work and I think the camaraderie between the team and getting together uh and 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 celebrating your work and and the important work that you do mm. is important as well. Uh, so yeah, they they do that well, I think.
0: What's changed, Glenn? Do you think in the way that police deal with these crimes now?
1: Look, I I, I was lucky to come across uh, come into sex crimes at a time, um, and and just immediately before that, when Christine Nixon was chief commissioner, and I know a lot of police um, were she wasn't the most popular chief commissioner amongst a lot of police. I loved it. I thought she was fantastic. She had a real focus on 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 um doing um uh, responding to uh crimes against women and children in a more thoughtful way mm. um, She worked with government and worked with her own police force to strengthen uh the approaches and educating her people um looking at the nuances of that crime mm. and understanding that it it wasn't just the act there was a story behind that so we we educated our police better on how to respond to uh, domestic violence as a crime. Um, We educated our police to be more accountable about that, Mm -hmm. um, to treat it as a crime per se, and to treat those scenes as crime scenes. Um, So far as sexual crime goes, we had a lot more education in uh, cognitive interviewing, um, from interviewing victims, and also interviewing offenders as well. So getting the whole story. Mm -hmm. Um, When did you first select your victim? When did you first think about that you were going to uh, rape that person? Mm. Why did you select that person? Because offenders, much to uh, against what people might think, it's not a spontaneous thing. It's a very pre-planned crime. Mm. And often they will go to meticulous planning about the selecting of a victim. They're looking for vulnerability, um, and it might be that she's drunk, she's drugged, um, it's late at night, she's the last person standing in the disco, in the, in the nightclub. Um, it might be about creating that vulnerability. Um, we had, there was a, uh, a case that we had, uh, John Exaitis. um he was, conv- he was a hot chocolate rapist. He would stand outside a nightclub with two hot cups of hot chocolate. And women would, ca- would be coming out for a cigarette, dressed in, you know, nightclub gear. And he would say, oh, cold night, isn't it? And they'd say yes, and he'd strike up a conversation and he goes, oh, look, my friend's just gone inside. Uh, she's left me with this hot chocolate. Would you like this hot chocolate? And he'd hand over the hot chocolate to her mm-hmm. and she'd take a sip. Of course, it was laced um, uh, with a Hip sedative ice. and yeah, a hypnol. And he would then bundle, bundle her into a car and abuse her over a couple of days and then film it. And he was uh, uh, arrested. Uh, those tapes were found. Uh, and there were, it was there were so many images of women being sexually assaulted and raped, um, in in states of unconsciousness. Uh, and it was a, a really great job that um, one of my crews did in tracking down a lot of victims. Yeah. Uh, and he's, I think his sentence was one of the highest sentences ever given out for for rape. He he was um, sentenced to 28 years jail for. For those abduction, kidnapping, rapes—excuse <clears throat> me. Um, so, yeah, that was uh, certainly that's
0: that's a great result, isn't it? I mean, you know, you often don't get those sort of sentences, and that's a result of a very well put together brief. I'd suggest.
1: Yeah, and 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 the judiciary doing their job doing mm. their job too. I mean, you know, often the the sentences are are have been on the light side. I think over the last few years they've actually been going up, and there's a mm. there's a and and that reflects the communities want to have uh, more accountability for those who choose to commit uh, violence against women and children, including Mm -hmm. sexual crime.
0: Um, Do you notice that you've changed much as a person going, I suppose, you know, investigating these sorts of crimes, and and it's something you're very committed to? Um, Have you changed much as a man doing this sort of work, Glenn? Oh,
1: look, I think I have, Rochelle. We, We all grow up, and I think, you know, without getting too sort of existential about things, um, being reflecting on who I who I am as a man and who I was as a man back in the day, uh, and immersing myself in in researching this type of crime, um, it certainly gets you to look at you know where where do I stand, and I, I, it's certainly something that I've um, uh, looked at uh, quite a lot, uh, and um, you know being accountable accountable for my own privilege and entitlement as being a man in this society is is part of the work that I do, and I, I couldn't I couldn't do the work that I do now without the support of uh, of good women in the field who who are who are working with victims all the time and have done this work for years and years, um, and so I feel privileged to be invited into that space to do this work with them uh, yes. and support them, uh, and that's certainly my attitude now. I think in my younger days I I, I wasn't as reflective and. Uh, it was probably a sign of the days but um, uh, I think I've, I, I have significantly changed over, over a period of time and, and I, I think it's good. I get a lot of satisfaction of the work I do now supporting victims and doing education around this space.
0: Look, finally, Glenn, what advice would you give to anyone who's been a victim of sexual crime or violence?
1: Yeah, that, that's a great question uh, and I think the services are getting better and better. I think the... the um, the public and governments are now realising that you know this has got such an impact on on people and our and our our society and the cost to our society of doing nothing is is you know really dire. Um, but from a victim's point of view, I would be advising uh, women to go to a service uh, to get advice. Uh, the cars are, are fantastic services and they and they provide all sorts of options and they're not just about well, we're just going to take you to the police. They, they, they have that real uh, discussion about where do you sit at the moment? I, are you ready to go through this? This is actually what it involves. This is mm-hmm. what you're going to have to do to take this further. And they're very pro about holding men to account. They're very, um, they, they want to get people off the street who are committing these serious crimes. So they're encouraging to do that. But they're not going to force anyone to do it if they're not ready. And there's plenty of women out there who've experienced sexual crime that don't want to go ahead right now, but they want to park it for a while, get some support, get some strength. The best victims we had were the ones who were supported, had supports around them, had had family or professional people to, to support them on their journey. And whatever that emotional, psychological support involved, whatever their choices might be, they were supported in that space. So I think that's the first stop for a victim. I think... You know, uh, a specialist units, uh, sexual crime squads, the sockets that are now working locally, got really well trained people to go and to to take uh, a a woman through that process and yeah. to do it thoughtfully and to do it supportively. So I think they're they're prepared, and I also think that I would encourage women to go to them because I think it's getting better, and I think it's going to get better. I think there's there's moves afoot to encourage uh, to to increase the accountability of courts. Uh, and to resource better um, uh, these services to support women as well.
0: Well, look, it's um, been a pleasure having you sitting on the crime couch today, Glenn. Thanks very much for
1: joining me. Thanks, Rochelle.
0: Thanks for joining me. I'm Rochelle Jackson and I look forward to your company next time on The Crime Couch.